I recently finished I Am C-3PO, The Inside Story, by Anthony Daniels, his biography of his life in the golden armour of Star Wars' famous protocol droid. Now, I don't tend to give a lot of credence to actors' biographies, as by and large I find actors, or the ones that reach a level where they write an autobiography, to be largely narcissistic, privileged individuals with no real clue how the world works. There's a lot of whining about how tough acting is and the feelings, the motivations and the tedious and frankly bizarre life choices, be it spending millions of dollars on a bathtub or selling candles that smell like the vagina. And as um, comedian Frank Skinner once said, there's only one thing more embarrassing than the celebrities who talk about politics and that's the politicians who talk about anything other than politics. Now, to be fair, throughout the book, Daniels doesn't come across as a drug-addled buffoon, nor does he seem to indulge in purchasing silly things, or if he does, he doesn't mention them, but the self-obsessed narcissism comes right through. He comes across as a nice guy who perhaps takes himself a little too seriously, but whose golden heart is in the right place, and whose love for his fictitious alter ego is contagious. There are lots of nice behind-the-scenes stories about the films from the one man who's been in all of them, including Solo. And there are even some nice revelations, like the prequels not being as fun to make due to the more bullying atmosphere on set from the producer. He never actually mentions Rick McCallum by name, but that in itself seems quite telling. Daniels also disliked Richard Marquand, and he really feels that George Lucas was the director of Return of the Jedi, not Marquand. And the other thing that comes across from, from Daniels' book is what a nice guy Mark Hamill seems to be. Maybe Hamill will write one of these, that'd be fun. The major takeaway, though, is just how loyal Daniels has been to old Goldenrod. For the past 44 years, Daniels has rarely allowed anyone else to play C-3PO, be it on stage, introducing the London Symphony Orchestra, or appearing on The Muppet Show, to providing dialogue in adverts, radio dramas and animated shows. Daniels has always been there. C-3PO may have had a constant companion in R2-D2, but his strongest advocate was Anthony Daniels. Which brings me to Droids. Droids was a Lucasfilm-produced cartoon aimed at the younger audience and began airing in September 1985 in North America before being given a belated screening as part of the children's BBC strand from January 1988, over here. Wikipedia claims the BBC screened the series in 1986, but with the BBC's own genome project, which catalogues Radio Times publications and air dates of, of the various television shows, contradicts that. It actually arrived on British shows five years after Return of the Jedi, which may or may not have hampered droids' chances in the UK. But the BBC did give it a decent slot, 16.30 hours or 4.30pm, and ran all 13 episodes consecutively, so it must have done okay. For reruns, though, it was absorbed into the Saturday morning magazine shows, and as such had no regular time slot. It's a little seen as droids, with only the people who watched it on first run even being aware of it. 
It wasn't successful enough to warrant a second season and was retconned out of existence in Revenge of the Sith. So it's understandable that few but the hardcore Star Wars fans even know it's out there. I am a hardcore Star Wars fan, but at 15 years of age, which I was in 1988, I was probably not the target audience for droids. Sure, the the animation was fluid for the time, and it was nice hearing Anthony Daniels' slightly subdued voice provide 3PO's silky tones, but story-wise, I wasn't really down with the appropriately cartoonish antics of our favourite droid double act. The first episode of The White Witch starts with R2 and 3PO emerging from an escape pod and then blundering into the ownership of two Mad Max-inspired dude bros, Jod Dusat and Thal Joban. They are speeder bike racers, embroiled in a turf war with a Jabba-esque gangster, Tig Fromm. It's all pretty pedestrian stuff, although there were two moments of slapstick that genuinely raised a grin. The desert planet setting wasn't particularly inspiring either, but we hadn't had Jakku then, so it's possible that it wasn't as familiar to audiences as it would be now. It did provide a look at the regular people of the Star Wars universe, the people that weren't fighting the Empire or members of the Empire, and what they were up to. And as I've long suspected, they aren't up to very much. As I've long thought about Star Wars, the regular Lukes in the galaxy don't give a rat's ass who the government are. They all have poodoo jobs, pay the poodoo taxes and live the poodoo lives like the rest of us. One government is pretty much the same as the next, the ordinary folks. And once they may bitch on the holonet about the various different elected officials, I can't imagine angry from Tatooine really sees much difference in who he pays his taxes to. Granted, maybe, under a fur and balanced government, there wouldn't be as many huts and bounty hunters around, but they all seem to be peddling their words in the time of the old republic as well, so what's really changed for the Luke and Leia on the street? It's against this backdrop that droids happens. 3PO and R2 blunder into one adventure after another, going from one master to another, getting in trouble again and again, meeting characters that aren't terribly interesting or are cheapy knockoffs of the main trilogy characters, which is a bit of a misstep. Perhaps if this had been set in between Star Wars and Empire, it would have had more scope for stories and more dramatic set pieces. As such, this first episode felt very low-key and low-risk, The most memorable thing about it was the opening theme by the Equaliser composer and former member of the police, Stuart Copeland. Here it is. show now after many many years where I only really remembered the basics 
was the theme was like an old friend. One of those songs you used to love but haven't heard for ages. And I still knew all the words, which was weird. But, you know, episode one is fine. It's inoffensive and undemanding entertainment for kids featuring two likeable characters and some decent animation. As the series progressed, it would take a few more chances and Lucas would relax on his no characters from the film's stance. For one, the series would have a continuing narrative with the first four episodes, the middle five and the final four, all featuring the same masters for the droids before they moved on. For another, Boba Fett and Jabba the Hutt would both make appearances and, foreshadowing the prequels, the droids would get caught up in a Boonta race, similar to the Boonta Eve race seen in The Phantom Menace. Foreshadowing the sequels, the droids happen upon a character called Kaibo Ren. One letter's difference. Hmm. Sadly, the series was not picked up for a second year, as it could really have started to go into different places. Instead, the series was concluded with an hour-long special, The Great Heap, written by Ben Burt. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Burt was the man behind the sound of Star Wars, and without him, R2-D2 would have no voice. In the special, C-3PO and R2-D2 are on the way to B-2 to meet the newest master, Mungo Boabab, which is weird, as in the show's final four episodes, the droids are already his. Ignoring this discrepancy, or maybe it's just George Lucas's propensity for telling stories in a non-linear order, 3PO and R2-D2 are hijacked by flying monstoids and split up. 3PO is press-ganged into service as part of the lube crew for the Great Heap himself, a giant monstrosity of a droid that's recently taken over B2, and is draining all the moisture from the planet under the auspices of the Empire. 3PO finds Mungu, who has been captured by the Great Heap. Meanwhile, R2 is being treated like royalty, being relocated to the Heap's droid Harim. He even finds a girlfriend there, KT-10, a pink egg-shaped R2 unit. Of course, the young droid lovers are completely unaware that they're merely being oiled up for the Heap, who recharges himself by sucking R2 units dry. Unlike the other episodes of the show, there are plenty of droids in this episode, more so than in all the others combined, and droid society is addressed tangentially. Most of the droid storylines centred upon the familiar setup of R2 and 3PO being subservient to a master, or masters, whereas here they are really in control of their own destiny. The special uses the animation well to show other droids, droid culture and their lifestyles, with R2's relationship with KT, presumably named after Lucas's daughter, being quite sweet. They even share a hot tub together, which was quite racy. And there's a cute Jaws gag that raised a smile. Lucas and Bert also allow for the intelligence of the kiddie audience, using the same trick they pull off in The Hunt for Red October, whereby 3PO addresses the natives in their own tongue before it morphs into English. Or basic, I suppose. One touch I did like in the cartoon was that 3PO could turn his head completely around, something limited in the films due to the suit being occupied by a real-life human. R2 was likewise unrestricted, being freed from the confines of having to, you know, actually work in real life, and although he didn't seem to have quite the same level of gadgetry that we would see he had earlier in Attack of the Clones, he is possessed of a parachute, should he find himself falling from a great height. 
Speaking of Attack of the Clones, the finale with R2 and 3PO being bounced around a recycling centre was reminiscent of the end of that movie, with 3PO relegated to silly slapstick, even if the drama of the moment was higher than that of the film. Still, there's no escaping that from the perspective of 2020, this is yet another desert planet with moisture farms, and as such, just another planet that's Tatooine in all but name. Having the Empire as the villains actually makes it feel part of the wider tapestry of Star Wars storytelling, with the addition of Admiral Screed, who himself seems to be part cyborg, and as such was redolent of Valance from the Marvel comic series. I would also love to see the parents of the kids who watched this explaining what a harem is to the little ankle biters. The Great Heap has none of the sophistication of the Clone Wars or Rebels cartoons, but it's probably unfair to expect it to have. It was made in a different time for a completely different audience. Clone Wars and Rebels actually enhance the film experience, giving greater depth to what we saw on screen, whereas Droids is very much for the kiddies. With that in mind, The Great Heap is a fun adventure. Sure, the rougher edges of the Star Wars universe have been filed down, and there are some really cutesy moments, but it still manages to address slavery and the abuse of the environment in its storyline, and actually having the Empire be the bad guys made it really feel part of the film series rather than a completely unrelated adventure. Droids, were it available legally, is probably a decent introduction to Star Wars for younger fans, undemanding though it may be. It's not offensively bad, though. It really doesn't deserve to be retconned out of existence. It's nowhere near as bad as the holiday special. Launching with droids was Ewoks, which against all the odds did make it to a second series. Ewoks, likewise heard of here on the BBC, but heard before droids did, starting eight screenings in 1987. Maybe the Ewoks were just that popular. Or maybe not. Unlike Droids, which at least managed a sustained consecutive erring, Ewoks was all over the place, erring haphazardly between afternoon screenings in the traditional just-got-home-from-school-kids slots and in the middle of Saturday morning magazine shows. Despite this mistreatment, the show erred on the BBC well into the summer of 1991. I wasn't watching. By this point, I was well into my God, the Ewoks were dumb, pretentious phase of fandom, and having decried Return of the Jedi as the weakest of the movies, was not at all interested in the fuzzy little bastard's own show. Nowadays, I'm not as pretentious. I like to think I'm not at any rate, and I'm more willing to concede that Jedi is a fun conclusion to the series. It's much better written than The Rise of Skywalker for a start, and the Ewoks are actually pretty terrifying. Still, I wasn't going to cover this at all. But then I noticed that the first episode was written by Paul Dini. Yes, that Paul Dini, co-creator of Harley Quinn and writer of many, many of the greatest episodes of Batman the Animated Series. That Paul Dini apparently got his start on this show. I did not know that. So let's give episode one, The Cries of the Trees, a go, should we? Here's the not-as-memorable theme tune. We are the e e e e e e when it is scarce from the forest grow. We are the e e e e e when it is scarce from the forest grow. We are free, we are bold, like our story tells told. If we're strong and we will fight and we'll stand up for our rights. We're the e e e e e e e when it is scarce. 
kids than droids, with the cuteness of the Ewoks emphasised by the animation and the anthropomorphised animals. It's also very generic. There was a chance here to teach about other cultures and traditions that may seem strange to us, but a perfectly acceptable part of others' lives. But the show ignores all of that, making Ewok culture very similar to human culture and playing it like He-Man or Dungeons and Dragons, with the main adversary being a sorcerer who dabbles in nefarious magics. The story does touch upon environmentalism and, you know, it was all probably perfectly acceptable if you're five and under, but it really wasn't for me. Star Wars would ultimately find its mojo with regards to animation. The much derided holiday special has a pretty decent Boba Fett cartoon sequence at its heart, but audience would have to wait until Attack of the Clones was released in 2002 to see what George really wanted to do with his characters in Animated 4. After an excellent series of shorts by Gendi Tartatovsky entitled The Clone Wars, George tried his hand at a long-form story set in that time period. And it's fair to say a lot of people, myself included, think the animated Clone Wars series improves and enhances upon the films. That other venerable science fiction franchise, Star Trek, has also dabbled in animation. Back in 1973, series creator Gene Roddenberry was trying to get a new Star Trek off the ground, either in theatres or back on TV, he wasn't really fussed, and was offered the opportunity to take Star Trek to Saturday mornings. He accepted, acknowledging that this would keep Trek in the public eye and make getting a green light for the revised series more likely. Roddenberry couldn't be arsed with the day-to-day -day running of the show, though, and instead he turned it over to DC Fontana. For the first season, Fontana was the showrunner and head writer, and she'd be damned if she was going to kiddify Star Trek. As such, she contacted writers who had worked on the original series and told them that, apart from now being half an hour, they were to treat the scripts as no different to working on the live-action show. David Gerald, Sam Peoples, Howard Weinstein and many others would contribute scripts. I never saw Star Trek animated in first run. The BBC were quick to pick up the animated show after its success with the live-action series, and they began screening it in August 1974, only 11 months after its US debut. That was quick. We waited until 1969 for Star Trek itself. It started airing on BBC One at 1700 hours, a very respectable time slot for a cartoon, but by the end was sequestered away in early afternoon slots at the weekend. A new series of reruns of the live-action series were billed as the return of the real-life Captain Kirk and his crew at the end of 1974, kind of throwing a little amount of shade there on the animated series. The second season of the animated show was held back until 1975 and was screened at ten past nine on a Saturday morning. Further reruns occurred in the 70s, but I honestly have no memory of ever watching it. It received its last airing in 1977, until the BBC bought the entire Star Trek back catalogue again in the early 1990s. When the show was rerun in the mid-90s, I finally saw a few episodes, and was distinctly unimpressed. The limited animation was off-putting, the constant reuse of the same footage looked cheap and 
uninspired, and the theme, lazy. Just sounded like a cheap knockoff of the original theme, altered just enough to avoid copyright infringement. They achieved this simply by inverting the notes. High notes became low and vice versa. For those that don't remember it or have never heard it, here it is. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Alan Dean Foster's novelizations of the episodes, though, and realised some of the stories were quite good. Granted, there was a disconnect when I actually came to, to watch the shows, as to pad the licence out for as long as possible, Foster would frequently add extra B stories, and later on in the book's run, almost completely new stories would be added to make a single 25-minute episode a novel-length story. Over the years, though, I started to mellow out regarding the animated show. If you closed your eyes, the old magic was still there, and I even grew to like the background music. The reason the magic was there when one closed one's eyes, though, was simple. The cast all returned to voice their characters, although that was almost not the case. The cost of hiring Shatner, Nimoy, Kelly, Duhan and Nichols was almost too much, so Duhan and Majel Barrett were there to provide numerous female and male voices throughout the series' run, not just their own characters of Scotty and Nurse Chapel. Duhan was also to voice Sulu, as hiring George Takei was apparently out of the show's budget. It's hard not to look at this and see some nepotism involved. Obviously, the show could make a lot of hay out of Shatner, Nimoy and Kelly's involvement, but clearly Barrett, who was Roddenberry's wife, and Duham, who was a close friend of Roddenberry, were chosen purely for their ability to do many, many different styles of voices, and not for any other reason whatsoever, because, you know, Major Barrett's inclusion is integral to the success of Star Trek. Hmm. Still, to Leonard Nimoy's credit, when he found out what was happening, he refused to take part until Takai was involved. Seemingly, the same courtesy was not applied to Walter Koenig as Chekhov, who was not involved, although Koenig did write an episode of the series. The best-received episode of the run is Yesteryear by Fontana herself. I came to revisit this after an email from Alistair Jakes told me that the entirety of Star Trek was based upon not fixing the timeline. Whereas for myself and many others, the main problem with the J.J. Abrams movie was that it altered time in a fundamental way, and then they didn't bother putting it back. My memory of yesteryear was that Spock wasn't supposed to die, and the crew put time right by doing so. So clearly, it was time for a reviewing. 
Here, though, is the original email that sparked this interest in reviewing yesteryear. Yesteryear and the City on the Edge of Forever by Alistair Jakes. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Alistair. You are correct that the episode I objected to was yesteryear. It is skipped over, but the reason this episode takes place is that after doing a reconnaissance mission to the past, Kirk finds Spock no longer exists in this reality because he died in the past as a child and only survived thanks to Spock then time-travelling to the past. My point being that in this episode they clearly establish that Spock only exists because of time travel. They didn't set the timeline right, they set it wrong, but wrong in the way that we're all familiar with. I can understand that this being a Spock-focused episode with a lot of world-building about Vulcan, that it would make it well-loved. The problem is I grew up with the Enterprise and reruns of Voyager, and the Vulcan character on the bridge there was so standard it was dull. The characters I wanted to see more focus on are Scotty, Uhura and Chekhov, but you know better than I how seldom that happens. The other big issue I have with that episode is that it reuses the Guardian of Forever. I know everyone loves City on the Edge of Forever. I've read and watched too many time travel plots to find this good. Everything it does I've seen before better in later stories. I don't want to make anyone dislike something that gives them pleasure. I'm glad this episode brings people joy. And perhaps it was the hype that made me see it differently. That's entirely possible, Alistair. So let's review Yesteryear, should we? Yesteryear opens with the Enterprise in orbit around the Time Donut planet from City on the Edge of Forever, as Alistair mentioned. The crew are doing historical research, but when they return to their own time, they are presented with a problem. What a trip, Bones. Orion at the dawn of its civilization. Even just observing, not touching anything for fear of changing some piece of history. What's the matter? Bones? Who's he, Jim? What do you mean, who's he? You know Mr. Spock. Right, I don't, Jim. Kirk to Enterprise. Enterprise. Beam up. Aye, sir. With no one but Kirk and the historian who was with them remembering Spock, they returned to the ship to investigate. Apparently, Spock was killed when he was seven, and therefore was never aboard the ship. Kirk's first officer is an Andorian. Kirk is perplexed. They changed nothing about the past in The Guardian, but now they find that Spock died age seven, and his crew have no idea who Spock is. The death of Spock ultimately led to the separation and death of Amanda and Sarek. Spock has a vague memory of being saved during his Cars 1 by a cousin named Selleck. The Cars 1 is a Vulcan test of adulthood, and it was the precise moment that the Guardian gives as the death of Spock. Kirk decides to send Spock back in time to try and put right what once went wrong. Yesteryear has a lot going for it. For one, the producers bring back Mark Leonard as Sarek's voice, which must have been a budget cruncher, as most of the male voices done in the show were provided by Jimmy Doohan rather than hire extra actors. Sadly, Miss Jane Wyatt was not asked to return as Amanda, and Majel Barrett provides her voice. Also amusing is that despite the canonical status of the cartoon being brought into question on numerous occasions over the years, this episode seemed immune from that. The specifics of Spock's childhood were entered into the character's personal history, and even his pet Salat, Aichea, was mentioned in an episode of the live-action show. Sarek recalls the events of this very episode in the Next Generation segment Unification Part 1. 
The wry amusement for me, though, was that vast chunks of this were replicated in the 2009 Star Trek movie, despite there being clearly no mention here of Michael Burnham. Obviously, somebody somewhere later screwed up the timeline again, because clearly Burnham never existed, and neither did Cyborg. The scene where Spock's pet dies is actually quite traumatic, but its handling of death and how we deal with death, being at least as important as how we deal with life, is touching and sensitively handled long before the Wrath of Khan would handle similar themes. The importance of a pet to a child, and the importance of dealing with death when said pet dies, is an important part of childhood. And Spock is no different. An equally significant moment in Spock's life also occurs in that it is Spock who helps Spock realise his true path is the Vulcan one. Another smile was raised by the name Spock adopts in the past. Selleck. Presumably his first name was Tom. Or maybe he just had one of those little T and apostrophes before his name, to Selleck. I quite like that idea. Of course, none of this addresses the quite large plot hole at the centre of the story. Exactly what altered time? If the historians were just monitoring the past, then they altered nothing. Likewise, Kirk and Co. weren't even on Vulcan, so they didn't do it. So if nothing altered time, then is Alistair correct? Does this episode put time right? Or does it make a mistake the real timeline? Well, obviously, it all depends on how you interpret time travel and what the Guardian of Forever can and cannot do. In both this episode and The City on the Edge of Forever, the Guardian is seen to be a repository of historical information. And if the timeline is screwed up in some way, it will allow you to try and change it back so the flow of time is uninterrupted. That implies that Spock's death is a cock-up, not the actual way of things. Secondly, Spock remembers his cousin saving his life as a boy, although he does not remember the death of his pet. This implies that Selek is supposed to save Spock. It's a part of his history. Spock learning the neck pinch from himself is a nice little easter egg, but Elder Spock being the catalyst for young Spock choosing the Vulcan way is crucial to the character, an event that cannot happen without time-travelling Spock. Likewise, Spock not being there to save his younger self is what causes the timeline to splinter. But Spock also recalls never seeing that relative again, despite looking for him. So I submit Spock is living in the real timeline. The historians didn't alter time. Neither did Kirk and Spock. Elder Spock remembers the car's wan. He remembers Cousin Selleck, and he remembers Selleck saving his life. It's a part of his history. It has to happen. If it doesn't happen, then the timeline is wrong. Time travel here isn't changing what happened. It's causing what happened. Now, one can argue that the death of Spock doesn't seem to make much of a difference in the grand scheme of things, which seems odd, given Spock's importance in major events, but... Maybe the Andorian figured out what the Halter was up to. Maybe the Andorian also stopped the Doomsday Machine. Who can say? What is undeniable is that Amanda wasn't supposed to die. So Spock puts her fate back on track. This means the events of Journey to Babel don't end in interstellar war. Spock has to live for all those events to happen as we saw them. And he will go to all these lengths to fix this wrong. 
By contrast, Star Trek 09, which has a substantially bigger alteration to the timeline, changing many events and lives, Spock is all like, ah, well, whatever. 09 destroys Vulcan and Romulus. It kills many, many, many people who were not supposed to die. And Spock's just like, well, you know, I'm part of an endangered species now. Oh, well, let's get on with fucking some young Vulcans. You know, the quicker we can write the Kelvin timeline off as a bad dream, even though I greatly enjoy Star Trek Beyond, the better. Alan Dean Foster's novelisation of the episode as featured in Star Trek Log 1 greatly enhances the story. All of the historians and supplementary characters are given backstories, including the Griffin-like alien scene in the show, a nice nod to the fact that animation can afford to do character designs out of reach of the live-action show. Foster also fleshes out Spock's relationship with himself and does a nice job with the story, including bits and pieces not found in the original episode. He also alters an interesting line. In the show, Spock tells Sarek he is on a pilgrimage to honour the gods, a line that really stood out, as I'm pretty sure the Vulcans don't have gods, although they may have done in the past. In the novel, this line was changed to have Spock be on a pilgrimage to his ancestors. I wonder if this was in the script and changed, or if Foster felt it was contradictory to the Vulcans and changed it himself. Sadly, he doesn't alter the line in family. All is silence, which seems to advocate closing your eyes towards abuse. I'm sure that wasn't Fontana's original intent, though, as contextually it can be read to mean we deal with our problems within the family. It's almost like the Godfather in many respects. Yesteryear, irrespective of the changes or intent, is a cut above most filmation animation of the time. The story is heartfelt and intriguing, as well as enjoyable to all ages, and far more satisfying than droids, and especially Ewoks, despite ostensibly being aimed at a similar audience. This demonstrates that creators seem to have lost something when it comes to writing for all ages, something that does not mean writing for kids. Creating nothing but undemanding pablum for our kids leads to leaden and unchallenged adults. Star Trek, the cartoon, at least attempted to make something that was recognisably Star Trek, rather than take the more obvious route of putting kiddified versions of the characters in charge of the Enterprise. Star Trek wouldn't return to animation until recently, when the short Trek strand had two animated segments. There is also two more animated Star Trek projects on the way, Star Trek Lower Decks and another as-yet-untitled animated project. The former is apparently by the man who did Rick and Morty, and given that I despise Rick and Marty, I can't say I'm looking forward to it. You could do yourselves a favour and check out some of the better episodes of Star Trek Animated that are currently available on Netflix. I heartily recommend, for example, The Pirates of Orion, although the cast don't seem to be able to pronounce Orion, as one of the finest episodes and could really have done as a live-action show. In many ways, the animated series is the fourth year of the five-year mission, and rendering it non-canonical seems nonsensical to me. It's no more embarrassing some of the third season episodes, and it's more recognisably Star Trek than some of the more recent endeavours.
have your favorite shows preempted, but look what you're getting instead. TLU Cast brings you Justice League Season 2. Back in business. The Justice League faces their greatest foes. This is a chance to rid ourselves of the League once and for all. Dark Side, Brainiac, Doctor Destiny, Lex Luthor, Amazo, Vandal Savage, Eclipso, The Joker, Harley Quinn, The Royal Flush Gang, The Secret Society of Supervillains, and themselves. Dale Ucast Season Two available on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and at FireWaterPodcast.com. Always have to be the hero, don't you? Right back at you. Okay, last time that I did this. I uh, mentioned that I had a, uh, not a lot of email, and then suddenly loads of email came in. So thank you very much to everyone who's emailed in. I will get them to all of them in due course. But our first email was from Matt Evans. Hey, Andy. Hello, Matt. Long time no email, though let me assure you I have been listening to and enjoying your delightful dribble. Oh, you've not been looking at my delightful <laughs> dribble. I think I may need a nurse. I tend to listen to podcasts on the move, so any insightful thoughts and feedback that spring to mind have completely evaporated by the time I get home and have become distracted by shiny objects and toast. Mainly toast. That's understandable. Toast is lovely. But such is the Proustian power of King of the Rocket Men that I felt compelled to put finger to keyboard. I used to love watching this on the morning reruns, but haven't seen it in decades. My jaw dropped when you mentioned that there were only 12 episodes, as in my memory, it was a staple, always on. Time plays tricks on us. It brings to mind something I often ponder about modern media consumption. People of our vintage grew up consuming all sorts of media from before our era, just because there was sod all on the telly, and we'd watch it anyway. As a kid, I watched King of the Rocket Man and other black and white serials. The Munsters, Harold Lloyd, Steptoe and Son, Zorro, Tarzan, Monty Python, Laurel and Hardy, and loads of other relics of a bygone era. Not wishing to sound too much like an old geezer, but kids today have a world of media at their fingertips that they actively seek out and engage with. In our house, we don't have broadcast TV at all, and there's too much new content to keep up with in a lot of ways. Sometimes I envy them, as they have the luxury of choice, and modern TV tends, in general, to be better produced, smarter, and less formulaic than in our day. To take just one example, compare the gloriously incisive, exciting, and captivating new Shira to the original version, which, without the lens of nostalgia, is utterly god-awful. This arguably is a huge improvement on the limited, passively consumed, often anachronistic media landscape in which we were forged. On the other hand, there's less of a historical perspective, less awareness of how we got here. It's a kind of eternal present, constantly threatening to trip into the future and skin its knees. Yeah, that's actually an exceptionally good point. I didn't think anything of watching black and white episodes of The Outer Limits alongside colour exciting stuff like, you know, Knight Rider in the 18. Because it was all just TV, and it was all, like you say, a science fiction show was on, I watched it. Especially something like The Outer Limits, where it had this cachet built around it. And there is something to be said for being able to watch an episode of something, not see it for four or five weeks, then watch another episode of it, and not feel at all lost. That would be the dog going batshit crazy. The, the, the problem, as I see it with a lot of stuff today, is Sheena, Sheena, Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, just came back for its third season, or part three, or whatever Netflix are calling it. And I, I watched, like, the first couple, enjoyed it, but then it kind of fell away. Because, like you said, there's always something new being thrown at you. 
But if season three picks up new reviews, there is that thing now that I think, well, I can't just check out season three because I don't know what's happened. I can't just jump in at that point. I would have to go back and watch them all again. And I think they've created this thing for themselves where you can't just watch an episode of something anymore, like Picard. Picard will be an eight-episode miniseries. Woe betide anyone who tries to jump in at Picard episode four. They, they wouldn't have a clue. So they've made this this thing now where you have to watch the whole thing. And I, I don't know if that's better. Because you're right, television is much better written and produced, etc. than it was in our day. But I think it's it's wrong to say that television was badly written. Everything was awful in our day. I think even something derivative and homogenistic like the... The A-Team, for example, that's the first show that came to mind. There's some clever writing in the A-Team. But, you know, it doesn't hold up compared to the stuff that, that goes on today. And like you, I watched all that stuff you mentioned. I watched The Munsters and Harold Lloyd. And I never watched Steptoe. I never got into Steptoe. But I did like Zaro and Tarzan and Monty Python and Laurel and Hardy. And another thing that you bring up there about King of the Rocket Man, I always assumed that... I'd seen all three King of the Rocket Men serials. Turns out I'd only ever seen King of the Rocket Men three times. I have never seen the Commandy Cody sequels to Rocket Man. Whether they weren't shown by the BBC or whether I just missed them, I, I don't know. But like you, I felt in my memory that I'd seen more King of the Rocket Men than I had. And it turned out I'd just watched the same one over and over again. So, you know, I didn't watch Shira as a kid because, rightly or wrongly, that was considered a girls' show. I didn't watch girls' shows. But there's this big swell of interest at the moment in He-Man. We was in um, uh, Worlds Apart in Liverpool just this past weekend. And they've got all the He-Man figures out again. They look exactly the same as they did in our day, Matt. But they're 30 quid a pop. And I'm like, is the nostalgia for He-Man... Is that really there? Because Netflix had He-Man on for a while and I watched the first episode and it was fucking awful. I'm sorry, but not as an eight-year-old, that show's dreadful. So anything that they did that brought that back that made it better would probably be an improvement, although there would be no doubt people complaining they've ruined it, you know, by having it actually grow up a little bit, which it seems a lot of people don't want to do. So, yeah, like you say in the email, you don't come to any conclusions. There are pros and cons to both methods. The ability to be able to just watch an episode of a show, enjoy it, come back next week or three weeks later and be given another episode of that show and enjoy it. Against now, if you miss two or three episodes of something, you may as well not bother watching it. Like, that's where I currently am with the, the WB shows or the CW shows of The Flash and Supergirl and Arrow and all of that stuff. I, I dipped out. The only one I've kept up with is Legends of Tomorrow, which I think balances the sheer batshit craziness of a superhero time travel show with the seriousness of the situations that they find themselves in. Legends of Tomorrow I've kept up with because it, it doesn't... There are no sacred cows in Legends of Tomorrow. It will slaughter everything. And it feels quite interesting in that regard. Anyway, enough, get off my lawn, rambling, continues Matt. Just one more thing. Your vehicle's list was a joy to listen to, even if the Erwolf appreciation did veer towards the disturbingly sexual. Mind you, I feel that way towards the oddly omitted Thunderbird 2, so who am I to judge? All the best, Matt. I could have made an entire episode 
just out of Jerry Anderson vehicles. And the temptation to do that was quite large. But I'm probably going to, speaking of sacred cows, I'm probably going to slaughter a sacred cow right now and say the Thunderbirds vehicles are never in my top 10 list. I think the vehicles in Captain Scarlet and UFO and Space 1999 and Stingray and all the others are better than the Thunderbirds. Thunderbird 2 always, to me, look like a fat bee with little, its little tiny wings on the side that are pointed the wrong way. It's like, you know, it is, it never it never did anything for me. Rob McCarthy's emailed in. Rob McCarthy loves Blake 7. It's got bits of Star Wars and Star Trek, but it ain't either. We see one and a half alien races that really look alien. The Invaders, whoever built the Liberator. Okay, that's a cheap universe, but it's also a universe where people die when you shoot them. On Blake 7, there's no My Race Has a Backup Heart. I love it unreservedly. I love Blake 7 as well. I think of all the shows that are aching for a reboot, Blake 7 is one of them. I think you could dust that concept off and do it today and make it work in the same way they made Battlestar Galactica work. Finally, tonight, Jack Bone has emailed in. I'm not the man they think I am. Oh, 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 no, no, he's doing Rocket Man, isn't he? I'm a Rocket Man. Yeah, very clever. I only got that when I was reading it back out. Love some Rocket Man, says Jack. I don't know which I saw first and wouldn't begin to know if I could look it up. It was definitely after reading about them in a 1973 book on the great movie serials. It was this that gave me a glimpse of the Republic cinematic not-quite universe of shirt props, costumes and effects footage, stretching from the Rocket Man to the Purple Monster Strikes, the mysterious Dr. Satan and King of the Mounties, Dave King in this case. I really should start tacking pictures and string to the wall and plan a watch-through of all of them. Hadn't heard of a comics adaptation. The ending does sound weird. It doesn't sound like an attempt to gracefully segue into the setting of one of the other Rocketman serials, which would have been my thought, as you might guess. Perhaps just a darker interpretation of the title, King of the Rocketmen. Food for thought there, Jack. Indeed, yeah, that, that could be the direction that he was possibly going in. Okay, thank you very much, gentlemen. I will knock it on the head, though, because, again, else were to be. But uh, thank you, everybody who's emailed in. Jack emailed in again. It's Zach Empire. I, I don't know if that's your real name, but Empire's a great surname. Luke Giaconetti and Charlie Niemeyer also leapt in and emailed, and I will be covering their emails in upcoming episodes. You, too, can join in the conversation at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com or Facebook me or Twitter me. I think I'm on Instagram as well, but... I don't know that I ever look at it before. Uh, everything's going to be fine. It's going to be great. Everything's going to be okay. Don't you worry about a thing, as the song says. And I'll be back next week when I'm going back to the amazing Spider-Man. Take care. See you soon.